Good afternoon. It's good to be here again in the house of the Lord. Amen. Uh, we had a wonderful prayer meeting also yesterday. Uh, it was uh, led by the young people as well, the youth and young adults. And uh, I was, we were positively surprised to see so many people come. And I think we probably have to consider moving the prayer meeting in here in future if uh, we continue, continue to have so many people attend. Uh, because our room yesterday was really full. So um, we are very grateful to see that uh, so many of us um, respond to, to this call to start our month in prayer. It's always at the start of the month. Um, and we pray at the start of the month because we, um, we have a pastor's meeting in the morning before the prayer meeting. And we plan ahead for the month. But um, the reason why we started meeting, I remember years ago when we talked about having a prayer meeting, was because we said it's important to pray. You know, It's good to make plans and to think about what we want to do as a church. Um, but if God doesn't bless the things that we plan, um, it is all worth very little, right? So this is why we have a prayer meeting. And it's wonderful to see yesterday also so many young people attend. Um, and uh, praise the Lord, it's good. And let's continue to pray, amen? Um, next Sunday, um, we will have a second basket. We will pass a second basket for uh, one of our pastors and uh, church members in the Philippines in uh, uh, Parola, I think, part of Manila, where there was a fire and uh, 40 homes were destroyed um, in that place. So we will, we have that in all churches um, across mm -hmm. Europe. Uh, we will have a second basket to raise money and send it to our church there. They have to rebuild the church and uh, many of the members lost uh, their belongings, their clothes, and other things. So we, uh, we will raise money for that um, next Sunday. Um, this Sunday also, um, our music team is in Kent. Um, they decided to go there from time to time to help um, our church. So if you don't see Brother Jonathan, Neil, and uh, Gary, Danny, and all the rest of them, they're in Kent uh, today. Um, and uh, we pray that God will use them there as well. And uh, they will also um, visit in other churches, other outreaches, not all of them, uh, this Sunday, it so happened that all of them are there, but um, we'll have to plan that uh, for the future. Um, but some of them will go from time to time to um, visit some of the outreaches to help them with music. Uh, but it's wonderful to see their um, you know, willingness and desire to, to help um, our churches. Um, today, we continue our series in uh, the Gospel of Mark, who is this Jesus? And um, I've chosen a story from Mark chapter 12. Um, and we'll read it later on together. But um, since it's our all-age service and our children are here today, I just wanted to um, somehow help us introduce the topic a bit more for, for our children who haven't been here um, last week and talk about uh, what we are hoping to achieve um, this month and uh, next month here. Uh, Jesus, the Son of God. So today's title is The Son of God, and we will talk in particular about um, this title that Jesus has. First of all, um, if you think about Jesus, if I was to ask you, who is Jesus, um, the children and anyone else, how would you answer? Because our theme today, uh, our theme this month and next month even, is, is, a, is a question, who is this Jesus? If I was to ask you this question, how would you answer? Uh, who is this Jesus? Sorry? Savior, Savior yeah. What else? Messiah? Yeah. Living God? Who said living God? Son of the living God, yeah, yeah. What else? Our kids, 
how would you answer? Yeah, Jensen? Sorry, healer, yeah? Nathan? Son of God, yeah? Yeah, Galileo? Sorry? A holy person, yeah. Now, whatever your answer is, most likely what you're thinking of are some stories that you heard of Jesus, uh, stories about Jesus, stories of Jesus, stories that he told, um, and maybe titles, titles that we give to Jesus. And in fact, uh, today we sung um, songs that uh, included many of the titles that uh, Jesus has. And I want us today to look at that, to look at the titles of Jesus, to look at, to look at one title in particular, and to look also at one story that Jesus Christ told about himself. Now, if you look at this title that we've chosen for today, Son of God, um, the title Son of God is important in uh, the Gospel um, of Mark. Before we talk about it, maybe, just to clarify, do we understand what the difference is between a name and a title? Kids, do we understand what that is? What is, what is a name? Because sometimes we get it muddled up, even as uh, adults, I think, when we talk about Jesus. What is the name of Jesus? Easy question. Jesus. Yeah, well done. The name of Jesus is Jesus. That's his name. Just like uh, you have Sarah, Paolo, Kenneth, Cla This is the name of Jesus, Jesus. Now, what about Christ? Because many times in one breath we say Jesus Christ. Is Christ his family name? Or what is Christ? Christ is a title. Christ is a title that became so important that we mention it many times together with the name of Jesus. Now, what is a title then? A name is a label that we have, um, uh, that we use to address each other, right? If we wouldn't know each other's names, we couldn't really address each other properly, right? So that's what names are. What is a title? A title describes usually what? It describes a person's position and his role, isn't it? So in, in a hospital, you have doctor, so-and-so, and doctor functions as a title. Um, usually, they go before the name of, of the person, right? So a doctor describes his position in the hospital, but also his role and responsibility that he has, now, or she has. It's Women's Day today, so we want to be <laughs> inclusive. Um, Jesus had so many titles, of course, and this shows you already that he was a very big person. He didn't just have one title or two titles. He had many titles. One of them is Son of God. Now, Son of God is mentioned only eight times in Mark's Gospel, but look where it is mentioned. It's mentioned in the introduction and in the conclusion during the crucifixion of Jesus. It's mentioned during his baptism, during the transfiguration that Pastor Rene talked about, and during the, during the trial of Jesus. So it's mentioned only eight times, but it's mentioned at all the crucial points in the story of Jesus. This is why Son of God is considered to be probably the most important title of Jesus according to Mark, in Mark's Gospel, as you read the story. Now, it is only one of the many titles. Christ is another title, title. and whenever you talk about any other title but Christ, you need to somehow explain what's the relationship between this title and Christ, because Christ means Messiah. He was the Messiah. He was the long-awaited Messiah, Savior of Israel and the world. Now, Son of God was a title that was used to talk about the Messiah. Who would this Messiah be? He would be the Son of God, right? So, uh, they are all a bit overlapping. They're not, you know, different things, especially when we talk about Son of God and Messiah. Now, let's go on then. And um, the question really for today is, what does this title mean? mean? What does the title Son of God mean 
um, for Jesus and what do we understand about Jesus by looking at this title. And it's a story that um, Jesus told um, in his life uh, during his ministry. And I want us to read this story and I think it talks, um, uh, it reveals some important lessons about who the Son of God is and who Jesus Christ really is. Mark 12 verses 1 to 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up um, to Mark 12 or you can read along here. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another servant to them. This one they beat over, over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat and others they killed. He had still, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. When they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd, so they left him and went away. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word once again. Father, we pray that as we try to learn more about Jesus and understand better who Jesus was, we pray, Lord, that you speak to us today, even through this word. Father, help us understand the meaning of this story. Help us understand what it means for us even today. And help us, Lord, to have a better understanding of Jesus. And as we know him more, help us, Lord, to love him more to follow him more. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be in your house once again, and we pray that you may speak now through this story to all of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's an interesting story, isn't it? It's a story that um, many people in the time of Jesus would have been familiar with, because it would happen that um, landowners would go away and they would leave their land in the hands of caretakers or servants, um, or even rent it out to people but they would expect, of course, a produce from that land to be returned to them. In this case, it was a vineyard that was rented out, that was leased out uh, to people who were supposed to produce fruit and give it, or part of it at least, to give it to the owner of the vineyard. Now, when people listen to this story, I'm sure that like with many parables of Jesus, they're a bit like a trap. Um, you know, people listen to them and they get quite excited. Oh, that's a wonderful story. You know, and usually what happens is that you identify with the good people in the story. But then at the end, they get upset with Jesus because they realize the story was told against them, right? So the leaders listen to the story and might have thought, oh yeah, you know, he talks about the Romans, this, you know, murderous people that are oppressing us. But uh, just wait, you know, God will punish them in the end. But in the end, Jesus mentions a quotation here, and we'll talk about it later on. And they realize that actually, 
this is a story against us. And they get so upset with him, it says here, when they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd. Right? They wanted to put him in prison. They got so upset with him. Right? So what is this story about and what made them so upset with Jesus? First of all, um, I have a game for the children here and for the adults as well. Let's try and see because that's what we've read here is a story that functions as an allegory. Um, it has uh, different symbols that, uh, correspond, that have corresponding meanings um, in real life. Right? So let's try and see if um, we can uh, guess or um, if we understand what the allegory is all about. So we have an owner. We have the owner of uh, the vineyard. Who is the owner? Who, whom does he represent? God, yes. God, any, any other answer? God, yeah, God is a good answer, yeah. Okay, God, yeah. Second, we have a vineyard. What is the vineyard? Us, people, the whole world, yeah. What did we say here? The world, the whole world, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, in the Bible, uh, the vineyard usually is the people of God. Um, Isaiah chapter 5 is one of the most beautiful songs of the Old Testament. It's the song of the vineyard, and it's a very similar story. A lot of the stories of Jesus are similar to some of the stories in, in the Old Testament. Uh, to us, they sound very new because we don't know the Old Testament. But if you were a Jew in the time of Jesus, a lot of them, you know, they would go like, oh, you know, we remember this story, uh, but they are usually told with a twist. Right? And we'll see there's a twist here today as well. So the vineyard usually are the people of God um, in the Bible. Who are the servants? So we read in the story that the owner sends his servants. The first one is beaten up. The second one is hit on the head and insulted and sent away. Prophets. The servants are the prophets. And there's a famous story of Stephen, the first uh, uh, person, the first Christian to die for his faith in the Bible. And he talks about the Old Testament, and he says, you know what, God sent his prophets, his servants, and he says something similar to what Jesus said here, that you, uh, you insulted them, you uh, rebelled against them, and you even killed them. And he says, this is what you did also with Jesus. It's a long tradition of disrespecting the messengers of God. So the servants are the prophets whom God sent in the Old Testament. Now, why did God send prophets in the Old Testament? What was the idea of sending a prophet? What was, the, what was the job of a prophet? To warn. To warn people that if they don't repent, if they don't start obeying the law of God, God would come and punish them. Right? And of course, what was the reaction of people? Oh, he would never do that. God will never do that. And usually why, the reason why they said God will never do that is because the temple of God is in the city. God will not destroy Jerusalem because he would shoot himself in the foot. He's here. Right? The temple of God is in the city. And Jeremiah comes and says, uh, stop saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, because God can destroy even his own temple. You say, ah, oh, Jeremiah, you're joking. And then a few years later, the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. So the servants were sent, the prophets were sent to warn the people that if you don't uh, change, if you don't repent, God will come and punish you. What are the benefits expected? What does the owner expect in return? He expects a profit. He expects part of the fruit, right? Um, the, sorry, I, 
we went to the next point. The benefits are expected from whom? From the renters, right? What is expected? A part of the crop. What does that represent? In the Song of Isaiah in chapter 5, uh, God says, I expected justice and righteousness. I expected justice and righteousness. I expected you, my people, to live in justice and righteousness. But you were cheating each other. You were lying to each other. You were oppressing the poor um, amongst yourselves, right? So justice and righteousness are expected. Now, what was the actual return that he yielded? What did he actually get? So this is what was expected, but what did the owner actually get? Let's ask the kids. What did he get? Did he get any of the crop in the story? What did he get? Sorry, nothing. Yeah, and even more than nothing, or even worse than nothing, his servants got beaten, isn't it? They got insulted. They got even killed, right? So the story starts off saying that he bought this land, he invested in this land, he uh, planted all the vines, he built a, a he built a wall around it. He built a, a wine press in the middle of the vineyard. So he was preparing for, for what? For harvest. He was preparing to, to yield crop, to yield result, to produce the finest wine. And what did he get? For all his investment, he got nothing. He invested a lot, but he got nothing in return. In fact, he even had to suffer the damage of losing servants in the process. So no share given to owner, beatings, insults, and bloodshed. Now, what is the result? What happens? And imagine, this went on for quite some time. Because the owner sent the servant, he got beaten, he came back with a blue eye, and you know, I, didn't, I didn't get anything. They didn't want to give me anything. They kicked me out, right? So he sent another one, and again, and this went on and on. So for a long time, if you were one of the renters, what would you assume? Oh, here come another sir. Here comes another servant. Oh, let's give him also a good beating. You know, he will just go away, and you know, that, that's all. You know, we can enjoy the produce and we can enjoy the wine, the wine for ourselves. So for a long time, the result was nothing. Nothing really happened. They must have assumed that the owner is a weak guy. You know, he's a weakling who is just hiding away. They can't do nothing to us. You know, we even killed his servants, and nothing happens. But what we see is that all of a sudden, at the end of the story, the owner appears. And the renters are being punished and replaced. The vineyard is taken away from them and given to someone else. Now, we said the vineyard is the people of God. What happened to the leaders? What happened to the people of God in the time of Jesus? The leaders got upset with Jesus because they sensed that God is doing something new. They did not take care of the people of God. And God was about to do what we read here. He was about to remove those leaders who were wicked, not able to help the people of God produce any fruit of justice and righteousness. And the people of God were given instead to Jesus Christ, who became their new leader. Now, two easy questions, or one easy question, one trick question, actually. Who is the beloved son in the story? Oh, we know it. Who is the beloved son? Jesus, right? Now, where did you hear that? That's too easy. Where did you hear that say, uh, said before? My beloved son. Just think about it. Where was it said before in the gospel? Even in Mark, in the gospel of Mark, at what point in the time of Jesus did somebody say, beloved son, to him? At this baptism, isn't it? The skies opened and there was a voice that came say, saying, this is my beloved son. Now, beloved son, usually that phrase 
Um, if it says beloved son, what it means is not that you, you have a father who has three sons and one is the beloved, right? He loves only one, the others he doesn't love. Usually when it says beloved son, it's the only son. And it says beloved because he loves him so much. That's the only son that he has. If something happens to him, that's it, right? So he is the beloved son. So he is Jesus Christ. But then there's something else. The parable doesn't end here. He talks about the cornerstone. And we sung about the cornerstone. Who is the cornerstone? It says that the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. Who was the cornerstone? Jesus also. Now, how do you explain that? How is Jesus the cornerstone? And it's a bit tricky. Um, but if you read the chapter before our chapter, if you read the verses before the verses that we've read, chapter 11, you see that Jesus taught about something very interesting. He taught about the temple, and he said that I can destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. What did he mean? How can he destroy a massive building and rebuild it in three days? Is that possible? Can someone destroy this building here and rebuild it in three days? Is that possible? And the temple was much bigger than that. What was Jesus talking about? He was talking about his own body. He was announcing his death. He was saying that I will die. My body will be destroyed, but I will come back to life in three days. Now, we will talk about why this is important. Jesus becoming our new temple later on. So, are we clear with what, what this story is all about? Yes? Do we understand what's going on here? Yeah? yeah. Yes? Okay. We'll test you later. Now, I want to focus on three things, really, in this story today. Three teachings. Uh, a teaching about God, a teaching about Jesus, the Son of God, and a teaching for us today, or a teaching about us today. The first is this. There's a teaching that is very important here about God. We listen to the thought process of the owner, who we said is God or represents God, and we understand and we um, somehow get a sense of the optimism that the owner has. He sends servant after servant. Why, why, why does he do that? Is that not interesting? Servant after servant is sent out. And I can imagine his friends telling him, you know, you're wasting your time. Just you know, call the police, uh, raid the place, and throw them out. He says, no, I will send yet another servant. Maybe this time they will listen to him. Right? And again, he comes back all beaten and says, you know what, I'll send yet another servant. Right? So you, you go, you, you read the thought process here of the owner, and you realize the optimism that he has. Now, it comes to a point where he says that I will, I will even send my son. And he says that maybe if they did not listen to my servants, they will listen to my son. Let me ask you a question. If you were in the shoes of the owner, would you have done that? Would you have sent your son? After, let's say, you've sent six servants and all of them have come back beaten or some of them didn't even come back because they got killed. Would you say, you know what, let me try my son. Maybe they will listen to my son. Would you do that? You might say, that's not a very prudent decision. He said, these renters are dangerous people. They even had uh, the guts to kill servants that were sent before. Yet God, the owner of the vineyard, does exactly that. He sends his own son. Now, what does it tell us? I think there's an important lesson here for us about God. What it tells us is that God is relentless in pursuing human beings, no matter how often his proposals are rejected. It shows us 
the relentless pursuit of God um, in reaching human beings, even though he's rejected for many, many times. It talks about the determination of God to reach out to people. It talks about the patience of God. And I think it's something that resonates with us as well. Because if we think about our life, God has been patient with us, isn't it? If you think in terms of history, you can say that God has been patient with the church. God has been patient with Israel in the Old Testament. That although for many years they rebelled against God, they disregarded the law of God, they disregarded the prophets of God, he did not punish them. He did not punish them, but he continued to be patient with them. So we, we find something, we, we see something here in this story about the patience of God, how patient God is. And his patience is an active patience. You know, he's not just waiting for something to happen, but he does something. He tries to help. He's hopeful that people will repent, that the renters will come to their senses and will start giving him the rightful share. Yet nothing happens. Yet there's a second lesson, I think, that is also equally important. Let us be careful not to mistake God's patience for weakness. Let us be careful not to mistake God's patience for weakness. Uh, Peter says something similar in 1 Peter when he says that there are people who are mocking us, saying that, when is the coming of the Lord? The Lord will not come. And he says, do not mistake it. Do not think that, you know, God is not faithful to his promises just because he's patient with us. And he is still waiting for more people to repent. There's something very similar here. The renters, and like the renters, we might foolishly think that we can push God out of the picture, seizing control of our own lives from him. Just like them people today in Israel, in the Old Testament, saw that, you know what, God will not do anything about it. We can just push the prophets away. We can imprison them. And if you read the history of the Old Testament, you will see that many of them were killed. Many of them were imprisoned. And the people thought, you know what, we can do that to them. Because God is passive. He doesn't do anything about it. It seems that we can do whatever we want, and God will not punish us. The lesson and the warning is this. Let us not mistake the patience of God for weakness. God is not weak. He is patient with us, and he was patient with his people. A day of reckoning is coming, we read, when God will reappear on the scene. And this is what Jesus Christ, and many of the stories of Jesus, you might say, oh, they're beautiful stories, but we miss many times the last line that says, that talks about uh, gnashing of teeth, that talks about punishment, that talks about judgment. Many of the stories of Jesus are beautiful stories, and then you read the last line. And you find out that actually these are serious stories. This story reminds us that there will be a day of reckoning when the owner will reappear on the scene. You know, like the renters, we might make the same mistake and assume that God is weak and we can push him away. And now we are in control of our lives. We are in control of our resources. We are in control of our talents. We can do with our life. We can do with our time. We can do with what God has given us. And what we know belongs to God, we can do with it whatever we want. Because God is weak. You know, I've been doing that for many years, and there's been no punishment. God has not done anything about it. And we might even ridicule, like those people, others who uh, try and live in accordance to the word of God and say, Oh, you're foolish. Look, I disregard it, and nothing happens. Where is your God? Jesus tells us here, and he gives us a warning, do not mistake God's patience for weakness. Remember that God will come, and he will judge each one of us. Whatever we have done, 
whatever we have not done. The way we have lived our lives, we are accountable to God. Why? Because, and uh, some of you said that the vineyard really represents more than just the people of God. And you can see it in that way. The vineyard represents everything that God has given us. And he expects what? Justice and righteousness. He expects fruit in return. He, he expects fruitfulness from our lives. Jesus Christ says, there is a day when all of us will be asked by God, what have you done? with the things that I have given you. And of course, it's similar to other stories, like the story of the talents and others, where the same um, idea is presented, that what we have today doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to God. God is the true owner of the vineyard, of our lives, of this world, of this church, of the people, the people of God. It doesn't really belong to us. It all belongs to God. And all of us are, are accountable to God for the way we live our lives. The second lesson is about Jesus Christ. So the first lesson talks about God. The second lesson talks about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, what do we learn about the Son of God? Because uh, that term and phrase is mentioned here. He was the Son of God. The owner sent his own son uh, to come. What do we learn about the Son um, in this story? Why did he send his son? Last resolve, yeah? There was nothing else? There was hope that they would respect him, yeah? Because in ancient times, your son could actually represent you. Um, your son uh, would function as your representative for any important legal meetings. And your son being present there would demand that he's being shown the same respect that you would show to the owner, right? So it was a last resolve, last uh, solution thing. But it was also because of that understanding that the son represents God, the son represents the owner in a special way. And it is something that you see again through scripture that this is how God relates to us and this is how God reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is a representative of God. Now, nowhere in the Bible do you have uh, the people like Israel or the church uh, being able to uh, come directly before God, the Father, without a mediator. There's always a mediator, right? And you see that you've got glimpses of what happens when people um, do not come face to face with God, but have somehow a glimpse of his glory, of the glory of God. You see it with Moses, something we can't imagine. Or Moses is on, on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days. When he comes down, his face is so radiant that people say, Moses, cover your face because you are killing us. And it's not because you are so handsome, it's because you radiate the glory of God. It's too much for us to take in. It's too much for us to take in. So Moses, and he wasn't meeting face to face with God. Uh, he just saw a glimpse of God's glory, right? Um, and it was too much for people. You see that with, with the Apostle Paul. What happens to the Apostle Paul when he, um, when he sees Jesus Christ, the ascended Christ, not Jesus as he was incarnated as a human being, but the resurrected, um, ascended Christ meets him on the way to Damascus. What happens to Paul? He's riding along on his horse. He falls off the horse and he's blinded. He can't see and he needs a miracle for his eyesight to be restored, right? And you see that all throughout scripture, we cannot bear the presence of God. So God relates to us through mediators. And you see that with Jesus Christ. You saw that with the prophets in the Old Testament as well. 
Now, Jesus is different to the prophets of God. Why is he different? He's different because he's the exact representation of God. There's a wonderful verse in Hebrews that says, Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our, to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Prophets received a message from God, and then they would go to the people, and they would tell the message to the people as they remembered it. Jesus is different. If you wanted to compare it, let's take as an example Jensen. If you look at Jensen, you can see something of Brother Kamlon in him. No? You can see something of Sister Glenda in him. Why is that so? Is that only because of his genes? Maybe you might say, yeah, the looks, it's all down to genes. But what about his behavior? What about the way he talks? And that's true for all of our children, for Hannah, for, for Nathan, for Galileo, uh, for Laura. There is something in them that reflects their parents. Why is that so? Why is the way they talk so similar to the way their parents talk? It's because they spend time together, isn't it? For nine years, you live together with your parents. You hear them talk, uh, you see them behave, and you start becoming like them. Jesus is the exact representation of his father. Why? Not only is he the same in being, he's God as well, but he was together with the Father from eternity. From eternity, Jesus is together with the Father. So this verse says that, yes, God has spoken through prophets, but there is a complete, perfect revelation now in Jesus Christ. And this is why whatever religion, whatever faith you talk about, and you mention prophets and holy people and holy men and wise men, they had nothing and no one compares to Jesus. Because those are all prophets. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's the son of God. He's God himself. So the way he reveals God to us is so much more profound. It is so much more perfect. And that's why we should, we should be grateful. We should rejoice that we have known Jesus, that we know Jesus today. And we can have such a clear picture of who God is and know exactly what God wants from us. We don't have to second guess God because we have received his complete and perfect revelation in Jesus Christ. Now, there's another thing that you learn about Jesus in this story. Imagine this, you are the son of the owner, right? And now for years this is going on, um, harvest time comes, your father sends a servant, the servant comes back, he's beaten, he's injured, he's insulted. For many years now this goes on. Some of them don't even come back because they are dead. Now, harvest time comes again, your father approaches you and says, you know what, I've got an idea. This time you go. This time you go. How would you have reacted to that? Do you think the son did not know what was awaiting him? It was dangerous. Yet the, the son doesn't object. The son goes. There's something in the story that tells us about the obedience of the son. It is something that we see also in the life of Jesus. There's obedience to the will of the father even when it becomes very difficult to obey God. And we read again at the baptism of Jesus, the heavens open, this is my beloved son, with, who, with you I am well pleased. From the very start of his ministry, God looks at Jesus and says, with you I am pleased. I am pleased with you that you have come, that you have descended from heaven, that you have agreed to become 
human, an incarnate being, that you agreed to come down to earth, although you know what to expect. You know that the people will not receive you well. You know that what will happen to you is they will insult you. They will ridicule you. They will even crucify you and you will die. And yet you decided to go. Is that not wonderful? From the very start of the ministry of Jesus, God looks down at him and says, this is my beloved son. I am pleased with you. I am pleased with you. You have obeyed me. You have obeyed my will. There's absolute obedience to the Father's will. Now, what is then the Father's will? And this helps us understand who the Son of God is. It is a messianic title, I said before. First of all, the will of the Father is for his people to produce fruit. The will of God from the Old Testament times, um, starting with the Old Testament, was always the same, for his people to be fruitful, for his people to produce the fruit of justice and righteousness, to live lives that are right, to live in fairness with each other, to reflect God by being holy and righteous themselves. Now, how is the Messiah, how is the Son of God going to accomplish this? And for me, that's the key question here really today. How is he going to accomplish this? And it is communicated in this story. Jesus includes that by talking about that cornerstone that is rejected. There are two things that are needed for the people of God to be able to produce again the fruit of justice and righteousness. The two things have to do with the temple and with the enemy of God's people. What was the point of the temple in the Old Testament? And why did it have to be replaced um, in the time of Jesus? The whole point of the temple was this. People could come and worship God. The temple was the place of repentance, the place of healing, the place where God would reveal himself to people, right? Now, what happened in the time of Jesus to the temple? It was destroyed afterwards, but how, how did the temple look like in the time of Jesus? The chapter before ours talks about it. It was a marketplace. It was a marketplace. It was the seat of political power. It was a place of corruption, right? Jesus Christ comes into the temple and says, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, a house where people meet with God, but it has become a den of robbers. It has become a den of robbers. People were not helped to come into the presence of God, but it was more and more difficult to come to the temple. Why? Because of all the money you had to pay, because of the um, animals that were overpriced, because uh, the, the money changes. You couldn't even pay with your own currency. You had to uh, buy temple money. Can you imagine? Just one way of making profit, right? So instead of going to the temple and paying with pounds, because everybody used pounds, let's assume. So no, you need temple money, right? Now, how do I get temple money? Well, you have to exchange your money. Now, who would win in the entire exchange? Of course, it's the people running the temple, right? It became a den of robbers, Jesus Christ said. The point of the Messiah was the reformation, the rebuilding of a proper temple, where people could meet with God. Now, Jesus Christ, he said, you know what? I have a better idea. I will destroy the temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. You know what? I will become your new temple. I will become your new temple. If before you went to the temple for salvation, now salvation is found in me. If before you went to the temple to be blessed by God, now you come to me and you will receive blessing from God when you are in me, when you have a relationship with me. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ talks about the temple, talks about that cornerstone that was rejected. 
that's the meaning of cornerstone. Now we can try and uh, extrapolate a lot of meanings from that, but the, the biblical meaning, when Jesus Christ talks about cornerstone, was this, he was referring to the new temple that was his body, which would become the place of salvation, right? Now, what about the enemy of God's people? For the people to produce fruit of righteousness, they had to be freed from the enemies that were oppressing them. Again, Jesus Christ, he had a different idea. His idea of the enemy, of what was the real problem, was different to what people thought. If you would have asked people, who is your enemy in the time of Jesus, what would they have responded? Who is the enemy? It's the Romans. It's so clear. Don't you see it? It's the Romans. They're everywhere. And we have to pay taxes. They oppress us. They kill us. We can't rule our own country. Jesus said, you know what? The real enemy is not the Romans. The real enemy is Satan. The real enemy is the sin that is keeping you in bondage. Because even if the, the, the Romans are removed, does that mean that you will be able to produce fruit of justice and righteousness? What about the Old Testament? When there were no Romans, when you were independent as a nation, it's your own kings that oppressed you, isn't it? It's your own priests that oppressed you. The problem is not the Romans. The problem is Satan and evil in your life. We learn something about the Son of God here that is important for us personally as well. It is in Jesus that we know God. He is the, the perfect representation of God. You know, people today at times would come to us and say, you know, I don't believe in your God because look at the Old Testament. Look at this passage. It talks about the Israelites doing this and that. How can your God allow that? This is the God that you worship. Well, my answer is this. Whatever you say about God, if you don't see it revealed in Jesus Christ, it is not my God. As simple as that, it is not my God because the Bible says the perfect representation, the perfect revelation of who God is, is not found in your experience, in the history you read. It is found in Jesus Christ. So whatever you think about God, whatever people say about God, if you don't see it in the life of Jesus, in the teaching of Jesus, it is not God. It is not God. It is our own misunderstanding and misinterpretation of what was going on. Because the perfect revelation of the Christian God is found in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Right? As simple as that. But we also learn something about obeying the Father's will, I believe. Because we too are called to become children of God. We too are called to become children of God. Now, let's not make the mistake to think that this means that I, as a son of God, am on the same level as Jesus Christ. Because that's not true. And that's one of the mistakes that we are tempted to make sometimes in modern Christianity. Oh, Jesus is just my brother, right? Because both of us are sons of God. Now, interestingly, when you read the Gospels, the Gospels, Jesus never says, he never talks about God saying, our Father. He never says that. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, you pray, our Father. But he never says, our Father. What he says is, I will go to my Father and to your Father. He always says, my Father and your Father. He never says, our Father. Why? Because there's something special about the relationship that Jesus has with God. So let's not make the mistake that, oh, I'm on the same level as Jesus. We are just buddy buddies. We are just friends. Because anyway, we are both sons of God. That's not true. But we learn something about the obedience of Jesus Christ who was the Son of God. The complete obedience of Jesus Christ, something that we are also asked to imitate in our own lives. That whatever God is asking us to do, we do it because he's our father. He's our father. Jesus was obedient to death, death on the cross even. And I hope that 
we are inspired by that, that we say also, you know what? He's my inspiration. I, I want to obey my Father the way Jesus Christ obeyed his Father in heaven. I want to do the same. I want to obey God even when it hurts, even when it's difficult. Now, what is the Father's will? It remains the same for us as well. God wants us to produce fruit. As a church, as individual people, God wants us to produce fruit. Fruit of righteousness, of living our lives rightly before him, glorifying God through the way we live our lives. God wants that for us, and he has done for us what he has done already for Israel. He has defeated the enemy. We've talked about that in Exodus, that he has defeated Satan, he's defeated evil, so that we can live free from the bondage of sin. Amen. So the title Son of God is important to us. It tells us about the mission of Jesus, and it tells us also what he accomplished for us. It tells us about how he related to God the Father, um, and it inspires us to have also the same obedience towards God. Amen? Now, lastly and very quickly, there's teaching about us in here as well. And the question for our series, the question really, um, the theme um, of, this, of the series is this, who is this Jesus? And we are also asked to answer uh, this question today, who is this Jesus? Some people might see him as a revolutionary, somebody who uh, gathered a band of uh, uh, desperados around him and who wanted to uh, kick out the Romans, right? And some see him that way. And if you uh, study liberation theology in South America during the dictatorships, there were even priests that took up uh, machine guns and were fighting armies, right? Because uh, they would look at Jesus and say that, you know, he is a revolutionary. Uh, you know, he wanted to do something about the Romans. It's a misunderstanding of Jesus. Because if you see Jesus as a revolutionary, he's just a human being. He's only a human being. Some say that he was a wise teacher, right? Um, and this story and many other stories, if you look at them and if you read what other uh, people say who study uh, educational theories, they will tell you that Jesus was the greatest teacher, teacher who ever lived. He was the greatest teacher who ever lived because if you look at his style of teaching, uh, it is really unique and it is very powerful. He uses a lot of stories. You know, it's now in our time only, you know, in, uh, postmodern times that uh, people understand how important stories are. Stories are important. They change and shape worldviews and the way we live our lives. Jesus, 2,000 years before postmodernism, he taught in stories, most of the time in stories. Now, I give you a challenge. When you go home today, try and write one parable, one parable only, that is really meaningful, uh, not just some nonsense, but a story that really has meaning you will see it's very, very difficult, very difficult. Jesus had loads of parables, and the way he told them, uh, they're in such a concise and compelling way. Uh, they're just amazing. Um, it is wonderful to read it. Even, I would imagine, even if you're not a Christian, the stories of Jesus must be uh, great stories to read, but how much more for us, of course, as Christians. But some people think that he was just that. He was a wise teacher, very smart teacher, who was teaching us to turn the other cheek, to love our neighbor, to not throw the first stone. And this is it. Is this who Jesus was? Maybe for some of us, this is how we think of Jesus, and we respect him as a wise teacher. But you see, if he's only a teacher for you, let me ask you, from among all the teachers you had in school, did you always listen to them? Did you always do your homework? Not really, isn't it? Because they are only human beings, isn't it? The problem with this answer is that Jesus is only a human being. 
Some say he's a miracle worker. He did miracles. He helped those who were destitute, those who were sick. He changed their lives by healing them. But if he's only a miracle worker, again, he's only a human being. Just try and notice now in the run-up to Easter, because usually you will see again that in the media, people will talk about Jesus. And you will see that what they talk about is one of these three descriptions of Jesus. But is this really what Jesus Christ claimed about himself? He didn't say that. And Mark knew it. The only time that there's a public exclamation and announcement that Jesus is the Son of God is at the end of the gospel. When Jesus is there on the cross, hanging on the cross, crucified, it's the Roman centurion that looks at him and announces, this truly is the Son of God. This truly is the Son of God. Before that, the demons and others wanted to talk about Jesus, and Jesus is telling them, keep quiet. The demons say, you are the Son of God. Jesus says, keep quiet. Don't tell anyone about it. Why? Because he was afraid to be misunderstood. For people to think that, yes, he's a miracle worker. Yes, he's a wise teacher. No, he's more than that. He's the Son of God who came, like in the story we read, who was killed. Because the renters who were entrusted to take care of the vineyard of God were disobedient and rebellious towards the owner. He's the son of God who came to die, who became the capstone, who became the way of salvation for us. He's the son of God. He's not just a human being. Who is this Jesus? For me, this is the most important question of all time. The most important question of all time for your life, let me tell you this, it is not what will be your career, what course will you take, or will you marry me? Those are all important questions. The most important question is this, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus for you? Is he only a human teacher, only a human miracle worker? Or do we recognize that he is the son of God? The reason why people in the media, and us also sometimes, we don't want to recognize it, is because we are afraid of the claim that he lays on our life. We are afraid that if we acknowledge that he's the son of God, we now really have to follow him. We have to be serious about following his teachings because he's not just a human teacher. It is more convenient to put him in one of these pigeonholes, right? Or wise teacher or revolutionary. Because this is how we can control him. You will never see in the media anyone talk openly interviewed and ask, what do you think, who is this Jesus? And they will tell you, you know what, on BBC News, he is the son of God. He is divine. They will not invite those people. They will invite some scholars who will try and put him into one of these categories. Why? Because it's easy for us. This is a domesticated Jesus. We can control him. We know what to do with him. Now, if he's a revolutionary leader, a historical figure, we know how to deal with him. But if he's the son of God, if he's alive today, then I have to read the New Testament and the Bible differently. I need to start obeying what I actually read because he is the son of God. The most important question of all time is this, who is this Jesus? Is he an important historical figure or perhaps a friend? Are we making the same mistake of letting our own ideas define who Jesus is? Are we making the, own, the, the same mistakes that people before us, many people before us made, that the people in the time of Jesus made? Why, why did many people not recognize Jesus? Because they had their categories of who the Messiah has to be. 
And Jesus did not fit their categories, right? And they rejected him. Do we make the same, the same mistake? That we come to the Bible with our own preconceived ideas of who Jesus is. And we close our minds and our hearts and we don't allow God to reveal who Jesus really is. My encouragement to all of us is let's open our hearts and minds and recognize who Jesus really is. You know, we talked about it today in our discipleship course. We talked about how today in our time, we think it is very progressive, very modern to have an attitude where we say, you know, I have my God, you have your God. No, uh, this is God for me. Oh, who is God for you? Oh, you know, God for me is a bit like this, and, you know, he's a bit like Santa Claus, and he does. Oh, okay, that's, oh, that's your God. That's fine, you know. As long as you're happy with your God, I'm happy with my God. Let's live together in peace, right? And we think, oh, that's very progressive. We are so modern now that we can have this attitude, no? As Christians, we can uh, hang out with people of different religions and just let them be the way they are. Because this is the spirit of our time, and we want to be up to date, isn't it? Now, let me tell you, this is a bunch of nonsense. Logically, this doesn't make sense. Because if there is a real God, if God really exists, whatever you and I say and other people say about him doesn't really change who he is, because he is God. And there can't be different versions of him if he's really God, and not just the figment of our imagination. Does that make sense? If there is a God, then there is only one God, as simple as that. You're contradicting yourself in saying that, yes, I believe there's only one God. I believe in the God of the Bible, yet I'm happy with, you know, other people having their other gods, you know, and this is also fine with me. It doesn't make any sense. Because if there's a God, then there's only one true God. And whatever I and you say about him doesn't change a bit in who he is, right? Who is this Jesus? Let's open our hearts and let's allow God to speak to us through this series and allow God to speak through us, to us through the Gospel of Mark also to reveal who Jesus really is so that we can worship Jesus and worship God as he really is. The story exhorts us that our response will determine our life here and for all eternity. The way you answer this question will determine your life. There are many important questions that we need to answer in our life. And they will have an impact on the way we live. Now, whom you marry, what you study are all important questions. But this is the most important question. Because the impact will not just be in this life. It will be also in the life to come. It will determine the way we live our lives. The most important question of all times is this. Who is this Jesus? Amen? In conclusion, and as a response to the message today, why don't we take a few minutes to... Pray for the person next to us. Let us pray that we may answer this question rightly. That we may not be overwhelmed by what the world says about Jesus. That we may not be um, uh, determined by uh, the way we have grown up. And we've talked about that in our discipleship class today also. That the way we grow up, the church we went to as children, our parents even, determined so much the way we see God. But that we allow the word of God to speak to us afresh again and to Allow God to impress on our minds who he really is and how he has revealed himself in his only beloved son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's take a few minutes to pray for each other. And let's do so with honesty. Let's um, ask God to use these coming weeks really to, for us to really have a deeper understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Amen?